All right, all right. One of the greatest movies ever, in my opinion. So, if you ever want to watch, invite me over to uh, watch Talladega Nights and the exploits of Ricky Bobby and company, uh, it would be my pleasure. Uh, I, I, I share that movie with you to, to bring home a reality within levity. You know, little funniness is always a good way to soften the heart. Um, but it's also the, the sarcasm uh, in a movie like that that allows us to see what is probably reality in our culture. And the reality in our culture is that Christmas, the holiday we celebrate, has become more of a religious tradition than a religious holiday. It's become more of a a secularized tradition in that 90% of America today celebrate Christmas. Nine out of ten people. If you talk to uh, your friends, your family members, even those who you know are far from God, they celebrate Christmas. They celebrate the traditions. But they don't celebrate really the hope that their season represents. And the question I want to pose to you today is not that we make assumptions here. Because, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to join in the chorus on the war on Christmas and add my voice to it. It's not about that. It's about Christmas being what God intended it to be as we sing the song, Joy to the World, where every heart prepares Him room. And so the question I have and the question I want us to to submit our lives under today is your heart preparing him room? Is your heart preparing room for the Savior so that this Christmas season, it's more about the gifts under the tree. It's about the person, Jesus Christ, who is the hope of the world. So Bart Simpson, the the famous uh, author, Bart Simpson, uh, writes, Christmas is a time when people of all religions come together to worship Jesus Christ. <laughs> That's what he said when he was sitting on the floor with his sister. If you have any Simpsons fans, or maybe that just dates me right there. Um, and uh, the, the reason why he says that is because there is, for many of us, a, an appearance of faith, and there's in, in, in the appearance of many people around us, the world around us, there's an appearance of faith, but there's, but there's really, it's lacking substance. We've been in the book of Hebrews, and some of the things that we've been talking about in Hebrews is there's shadows and there's substance. There's an outline of the real thing, but there is also the real thing. And there's the whole sacrificial system, the, the lamb that was slain, and the altar of God, and that that whole demonstration in the book of Hebrews points to the Old Testament as the shadow or the promise that was, that was given so that the substance or the fulfillment of that promise could come. And so what we have in American Christianity that we could easily get wrapped up into is a shadow and not the substance. It can all be about Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And then if you're like me, you forgot a few gifts and you went shopping a few days before Christmas, just like everybody else. And you actually had to step foot into a store, right? Anybody? This is like the first year you can shop online. What a world we live in. Not the first year. It's the first year we're all doing it. What what an amazing world that we live in. 
that you can get most of your Christmas gifts online and you can shop in your pajamas. Isn't it great? And yes, amen for that. Thank you, dear baby Jesus. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but 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 I want I want to ask you this question. There was a recent Pew survey that came out as a poll that says 90% of Americans celebrate Christian Christmas. 95% of those 90 are Christians, and then but 45% of them celebrate Christmas as a religious holiday. And 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 some of the greater telling numbers is that. The authenticity of the biblical narrative, the, the Christmas story, the, the gospel narrative of Luke and Matthew. And, and, and as you read that narrative, some of the facts that are in there are not believed by most Americans. In fact, most of the people that celebrate Christmas don't believe in the virgin birth, in Jesus, in a manger. That the wise men were guided by a star that brought gifts. That an angel actually exists and announced the birth of Christ to the shepherds. Most people think that's something out of fantasy land or fairy tales. But here in the Bible, the, the, the Bible holds that up to be authentic and true. And if those things aren't reality, then, then you really don't have this. Then this is just a shadow, not even pointing to substance. But what we have here today is, is the substance and the reality of Christ that says all the shadows that you've seen of God, all the things that He's moved in your life that has, has demonstrated Him to you are real and substantial. And you can bank your life on them and your hope in them. And it came through God's birth announcement some 700 years ago. And our text today that my daughter Adeline read from the Jesus Storybook Bible actually is from Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It was God's birth announcement. You know when you get a birth announcement in the mail and, and you, you hear of the newborn child? Well, 700 years before Christ came, God announced the coming of his son. God announced the coming of his son that says, this is where your hope can be put. This is the foundation for which your hope should be built. And it's, in, it's incredible how we hold on to promises as people. Because that birth announcement that God gave through the prophet Isaiah was the birth announcement of the hope of Jesus Christ. It came in the midst of calamity. It came in the midst of darkness. Aren't the promises of God so much more attractive when it seems like the whole world is falling apart? Isn't it loving of God to allow the world to fall apart so that way His message can shine through? So that way the secret rescue plan of God can not simply be something of tradition, but of reality that we bank our lives on? And so it came to the Israelites when they were being overtaken by the Assyrians. Their homes were being plundered. Their places of worship were being burned. Their children were being sold into slavery. 
They didn't really know if they could live for tomorrow. They didn't really know if Israel had a future. They wondered if God was real. They wondered if what they could believe in was true. It felt like everything was falling apart. And into that darkness came God's promise. Ray Ortland says, God came to his people first where they had suffered the most. Isn't it good to, to know in the midst of your suffering that God comes to you? When you feel so isolated and lonely, when you feel afraid, when you feel like there's no hope for tomorrow, God comes to you in that moment and says, press on. And not to press on because of your own strength, not to press on because of something that that you can do to make yourself better, but to press on because the hope of his promises. And Ray Ortland says it's from that place of suffering he launched salvation for the whole world. From the place of suffering, God sent a suffering servant to be the hope of the world. Think about the the Christmas narrative for a moment with me. A baby boy that the government will be built upon the shoulders of a baby boy, a newborn infant who has to nurse at his mother's breast The government will be built upon his shoulders. Is that God's answer? Is that God's answer to the calamities of this world? Is that God's answer to the military might of China and Russia and then the nuisance of North Korea now having a nuclear weapon? Is that God's answer? And yes, it's God's answer because God says in that baby boy, there's more power in his pinky than all of the world combined. And that promise, that hope that's built upon that promise has to stand because he has to have the power to fulfill his promises if he's really God. This newborn infant is God's answer. And, and, and listen, he was born in a feeding trough. It wasn't a pottery barn crib. It was a feeding trough. He was homeless He wasn't born in a palace. He didn't have a lot of money. His mom and dad were were trying to find a place for this newborn baby to, to live and thrive. And the best they could do was a stable. It wasn't a place for a king. But yet it was in that place that God chose to enter into humanity in the time and space of our deepest and most most thirsting need that God would move into that place. And God didn't just move into the world because hope is not about the outside. Hope is about what's inside. And that's really the point of this Christmas message is that Christmas hope invades our hearts. Not that it's all in about the circumstances, not that it's all about having a beautiful Christmas and and looking at your neighbors or looking at your friends or looking at those around you and, and saying you want what they have. No, no. Christmas is about evaluating, do I have room in my heart for this man Jesus? And will I let him into this space? And so many of us come in here today with crushed hopes because we feel lonely or we feel isolated. Maybe we evaluate where we're at in life and we wish we were someplace else. We wish we were far better than we were. Our expectations of where we thought we would be at this place in life have not been met. And so we feel 
unfulfilled. We feel incomplete. We feel unhappy or maybe even defeated. Well, I want you to know, friends, that the Christmas message is not for those who have it all together. The Christmas message is for you and me who in our place in life cry out to the God with whom all the governments of this world rest upon his shoulders. And we say, Jesus, would you be my everlasting hope? Christmas is about setting right expectations. Anybody ever had your your, your expectations crushed? in life before. Maybe you got a job and you thought a job would go this way and and you had these expectations for that job called a job description. (laughs) And that job description just didn't pan out to what it was. Maybe you're like me. I I like to go on vacation and, and every time I go on vacation, I set these really high expectations that just leaves me disappointed at the end of it. Because I think I'm going to get a lot of reading done. And usually a day or two before my vacation time comes, I have these books on my bookshelf. And I, and I start pulling out like three books. And Carrie's looking at me. And she's thinking, you really think you're going to get all that reading done? No, I, I don't. But I hope I can. And so I pull those books out. And by the end of the day, I realize I haven't even opened a page of, of one of them. Or maybe you've been to this restaurant that there was a lot of hype around and you thought it would be really good and so you're tasting the food in, in, in your mouth and you could, you could just taste how good it was but then you went there and you found that your taste buds weren't satisfied because you had those overhyped expectations. The, the Bible says that the only place where we can put our expectations where they're actually be fulfilled is in Christ. Only place. And if you put your expectations on anything else, it will collapse. Paul David Tripp says, hope is the confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Hope is the confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Meaning, if you bank your life upon Jesus Christ, then you will one day cash that check And there will be money in the bank because God has provided it. Guaranteed, put your hope in Christ and you will not be disappointed. But here's the kicker. Are we really putting our hope in Christ when we think we are? Because hope is not in a set of circumstances. Hope is not on on stuff. Hope is a person. Do you hear that? Hope is a person. And the person is Christ. There's an author that I've been uh, just recently following a whole bunch. In fact, she, she wrote this book 30 years ago. Her name is Rebecca Pippert. If you are familiar with Tim Keller, uh, I, I think that she is, she, she is like the female Tim Keller. To what Tim Keller is to intellect, she is to counseling. Uh, her, her, her stuff on happiness and hope is incredible. So she wrote this book called Hope Has Its Reasons. She talks about our constant search for happiness, and she says this, where in all of this restlessness are we to seek for happiness? We usually set out optimistically to seek happiness through things such as success, wealth, fame, relationships, but when we discover, but then we discover the hitch, 
The foundations we need for building our happiness need to be big enough for building our lives. Here's where we run into trouble, because most available foundations just won't do. Though it is often only after our hopes start to crumble that we discover how inadequate our hopes are. Take, for example, a competitive, aggressive businessman whose life is seemingly meaningful and happy so long as he's ahead and on top. His identity has been wrapped up in profits and successful deals. It's inconceivable to him that life could be any other way. Then his business crashes and so does his life. Business success is not big enough to build your life upon. There are countless variations of this tale. I have a friend, a lovely model, whose life is centered on her beauty. She once told me, the only bargaining chip I have is my looks. If that goes, then I have nothing left. But can beauty buy happiness? What happens if she gets what she wants and still is not content? What will she do if she loses her beauty and then she gets old or sick? Another friend tied her happiness to her lover. When he moved on to someone else, she was devastated and her life crumbled. Can you identify with any of these, by the way? I mean, these all hit me like a ton of bricks. She, she says this next. We need, therefore, to ask ourselves, what are we banking on our ha- for our happiness? And what would happen if it were taken away? If high income, physical beauty, the symbols of ease and the right mate of, or, or what life was ultimately about, then these ought to sustain us through crisis. But clearly they cannot. These things are not wrong in themselves, but they are, but they were never intended to be the foundation on which we build. They are instead the furnishings. You hear that? They're never meant to be the foundation in which we build. Instead, they're the furnishings. Furnishings aren't bad things, but if you skip on the foundation and just focus on the furnishings, you have nothing. The irony is that when these securities fail us, our life falls apart. And we don't stop to ask, is what, is this big enough to build my life upon? Instead, we tend to say, that just proves that there is no God, or my life wouldn't be this miserable. It rarely occurs to us that our lives may be miserable precisely because we have not trusted the one source of security we were meant to build on. Have you found yourself in a place of, of realizing that your hopes collide and crumble and realize that, man, life is not what I thought it was going to be. And then you found yourself blaming God. I mean, we can, can we be honest with ourselves? I, I think probably all of us have been in that moment. And the thing that we have to ask ourselves, have I put my hope in the foundation, in the solid rock, Jesus Christ? Or am I so concerned about the furnishings? Or am I so concerned about the furniture that the foundation doesn't matter. And, and here's the promise of the gospel, friends. The promise of the gospel is that foundation is what your life can be built on again and again and again, afresh and anew. And that our hope would not be in a set of circumstances or in stuff, but a person. And the person is the name, the Christmas name, the name of Jesus. 
The name of Jesus by which every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We say it all the time. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus is enough. But what would it take for us to actually believe it? What would it take for us to actually build our lives upon that? Well, I think it starts with us knowing who this person in this name is. And in that birth announcement, God set up the expectations for us. He's the wonderful counselor. If you've ever been to counseling before, and you're ready to spend a lot of money, which I actually highly recommend, and you spend that money on counseling, you're going to do so because you want to take that counselor's advice. I recommend counseling oftentimes to people. I recommend, I'd say one out of ten times people actually take me up on my offer for counseling. Why? Because they say it's a waste of money. Not necessarily because they say it's a waste of money, but because, but, but because they don't necessarily have the money. But oftentimes... They think that, they think that the, the counselor is not going to give them advice that they need, but in reality, they're making a decision to reject the advice in advance and say, I don't need it. We do that all the time in life. We, we think that we, we need information outside of ourselves about how to live our lives, but we think we have it all. And the reason why we need a wonderful counselor is because sin reduces us to fools. That's why we need a wonderful counselor. Because we, by our very nature that have been stained by sin, have been reduced to fools. And so it's worth having a counselor. But this counselor, this counselor actually knows what it's like to live in your shoes. This high priest knows what it's like to, to empathize with your weaknesses and to know you inside and out. This counselor, in fact, knows more about your life than you do, and he loves you more than you do. He loves you more than you could ever love yourself. And he gives you advice accordingly. And he says, follow this, and your hope will be reinforced, and I will not fail you. Is he your wonderful counselor? Or is he some advisor? that's off to the side, that you decide to take his advice when you want it or not? Do you have him on retainer? Or are you truly going to him each and every day for that wonderful counsel? He is the mighty God. The mighty God. Do you know why we need a mighty God? Because sin reduces us to being finite people. We're weak by nature. If you're like me, you struggle with besetting sin on a regular basis and you get frustrated by it. You need a mighty God who can overcome your weaknesses. You need a mighty God in the form of man who says that his strength will deliver you and set you free. And the nature of God's might came in the form of a baby boy who lived a perfect, sinless life, and he wrapped his life up on the cross. Not not a life many of us would have chosen. I don't think any of us would have chosen. It was a life that he chose. Why? Because his might and power could deliver him from death. And we need a mighty God whose might and power can deliver us from death. An everlasting father 
Oh, friends, when we talk about father, everybody has a different idea of what it's like because we all have different dads. And no matter who your dad was, he wasn't perfect. And so we struggle with the idea of father because our conception of what a father is has been reduced. But the best dads will be honest with you about their strength, be honest with you about their weaknesses. And they'll show you what it's like to cling to the Savior. And the everlasting Father that Jesus is for us shows us that we are no longer alienated from our Heavenly Father. That we are no longer separated from God because of our sins. And I can tell my kids, even on their worst days, that I love them. Why? Because what they do is not a precondition for my love for them. Jesus says the same thing, and he says it through his wounds on the cross. And he is our Prince of Peace. You know what sin has produced in our lives and why we need a Prince of Peace? Sin has produced brokenness. I don't care how you make it look on Christmas Day, and I know I got a nice coat on, and I look a little better than normal, by the way. You guys all noticed that. You told me when you came in. I I realized that. Um, But everything that we do in this life outside of Christ is just, is just a mirage. It's just putting makeup over our brokenness. But can we be honest with our brokenness? And we, can we go to the cross and say to King Jesus, will you be my prince of peace? Our lives are filled with conflict and chaos. And the promise of the gospel is that he is mending this broken world. He is making all things new. He is wiping away every tear from every eye because he is the prince of peace. And so the expectation that God gave his people wasn't in stuff. Do you see that? It wasn't in these false promises of your security through financial prosperity. It wasn't in these false promises for a longevity of life that you will never get sick, you will never grow old, and you will never die. That wasn't God's promises. God's promises is that when you put your hope in Him, when you do die, you'll truly taste life and life everlasting. And when you're going through those broken times, He will get you through. Because the expectations is that he is your wonderful counselor, the mighty God, your everlasting father, and your prince of peace. Unto us a child is born, and the weight of all the world governments will rest upon his shoulders. Do you see how the Jews and the Israelites could have gotten this mixed up? Because they thought they were looking for a political king. Oh, a son would be born. And in that time period, many sons were born and they were spoken of to be kings. But this king would never rule politically or or economically. He wouldn't have a strong army. But no, this king came not to rule, not to rule people, but to rule hearts. And he came to rule hearts because... God is so far more concerned with you, the substance of you, than the shadows. 
He's not concerned with with you trying to measure up or trying to make yourself look like you're lovely and acceptable. No, no, he makes you lovely and acceptable through his perfect redemption on the cross. And so he is the best gift ever. Jesus Christ is the Christmas gift. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I pray that we don't look at the manger this Christmas or the cross and say, God, is that all you got? I pray that we look at the cross and say, that's all I need. Do you hear that? I pray that we don't look at God and say, is that all you got for me, God? I pray we look at God and say, thank you, God. That's all I need. And it's better than I could deserve and better than I can imagine. So we talked about the definition of hope not too long ago. Where Paul David Tripp says, hope is the confident expectation of a guaranteed result. Well, the cross is that guarantee. The cross is God's great sign. God's great mercy. God's great salvation. That all things will come to be as he has spoken. And you can put your hope in him. Let me put it to you another way. Hope is not found under a tree. Hope is found on a tree. If you want to look for hope, don't look for it in the stuff that God gives you, but look for it in God himself who is crucified on the cross so that we might live. Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Is it in the foundation or is it in the furnishings? And this is the beauty of this Christmas morning. We can be honest with ourselves. Before we take communion, we could ask ourselves, where have I put my security? Where have I put my comfort? Where have I longed for others' approvals? We can be honest with ourselves and and we could say, is my hope in the furnishings or the foundation? And if it's in the furnishings, friends, it's okay to, 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 to have those things and to seek those things out, but only when Christ is your confident hope. If those things replace Him, they will never, ever be able to withstand the onslaught of the crisis that you might face. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one that says He died on the cross to die the death that you deserve, to pay the price you should have paid so that you can have the life that only He deserves, so that you can have a life everlasting. This is the promise of the gospel. And the promise of the gospel is even if you don't have the stuff, you have all you need. And all you need is better than you could ever imagine. Let's go to that hope. And let's receive communion with glad and sincere hearts that He is the Christmas gift. Hope is a person, and the person is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come to You. We ask, God, that You would help us this Christmas. That, God, Christmas would would be the icing on the cake when we gather around with family and friends, Lord. 
God, that it would all just be used to point us to you. God, would you help us when we feel lonely? Even people going into this Christmas season, Lord, I know are going to struggle because of the death of a loved one or because the absence of friend or family, Lord. I pray that you would help them. God, I pray that you would minister to their soul. I pray that, God, you would speak words of the counselor. God, that you would show them your might and power. God, that you would reaffirm the Father's love. And that, God, you would reconcile the brokenness. That you would bring peace. You are the wonderful counselor. The mighty God. Our everlasting Father. Our Prince of Peace. And Lord, today we worship you. Today we say you're worthy of all glory and honor. And wealth and wisdom and power. God, that newborn son who became the king on the cross is now the one who sits on the throne and who rules forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. The church says, amen.